Storyteller's Thread, a monthly podcast devoted to young adult literature and the art of storytelling. I'm your host, Sean Connors. On each episode, we invite an author for young adults to take us inside their work, and in doing so, to talk about their writing process, their inspiration for writing for young readers, and the general ins and outs of earning a living as a professional storyteller. So, whether you're a compulsive reader, an aspiring writer, a teacher or librarian, or simply a frustrated reader who's counting the hours until you get home and dive back into that novel that's waiting for you on your nightstand, this is the place for you. Hey everyone, thanks for being here. It's February 1st. My guest this month is the writer Candace Fleming who has to be one of the more prolific and certainly more versatile writers I've talked to for this podcast. Fleming was born in Michigan City, Indiana, and later taught at William Rainey Harper College near Chicago, where she continues to live today. A full-time writer, educator, and speaker, Fleming has written more than 40 books for children and young adults. This includes The Family Romanoff, Murder, Rebellion, and The Fall of the Russian Empire, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Young Adult Literature, and which Kirkus Reviews described as a remarkable human story told with clarity and confidence. She's also the author of the Boston Globe Horn Book Award-winning biography, The Lincolns, the best-selling picture book, Muncha, 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 and the Robert F. Cyber Award-winning Giant Squid. And if that weren't enough, Fleming's trophy case just got a little bit more crowded last month. In January, her newest biography, The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh, was named the winner of the Young Adult Library Services Association's Excellence in Nonfiction for Young Adults Award, which honors the best nonfiction books for teenagers. A review on Booklist described The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh as absorbing and distressing in turns, and the Wall Street Journal called it a fascinating chronicle of a reprehensible, estimable, and complex figure in American history. And I should add, if this podcast had an award to give, it would definitely go to the rise and fall of Charles Lindbergh. Considering the budget I'm working with here, I don't know what that award would entail. Maybe a coupon for a blizzard at Dairy Queen. So Candace, if you're listening, you've got a blizzard coming. The good kind, not the kind you people are accustomed to in Chicago in February. I probably should clarify that. Generally speaking, I don't read a lot of biographies, but The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh was easily one of the most intriguing, insightful, and engrossing books I've read in a long time. Beyond the broad strokes of his life, what I would have learned in school, I knew shockingly little about Charles Lindbergh going into the book, and as you'll soon hear, he turns out to have been one of the more complex and certainly more polarizing figures we've seen in American life. And that's saying a lot, considering who just left the White House. I had so many questions after finishing the book, and I was thrilled when Candace agreed to sit down with me and share her thoughts about Charles Lindbergh, his wife, the writer Anne Morrow, and her process for writing narrative nonfiction for teenagers. So you write fiction as well as nonfiction, and you've written everything from biographies to novels, to short stories, and history and science-themed picture books. Recognizing that, I'm curious, how do you choose your projects? You know, I choose the things that I'm interested in that somehow grab my curiosity or my heart. Sometimes I'm mad about something I want to write about it, something I'm completely enamored with. And also, oftentimes, if I come across a subject, it's sort of that first impulse. Let me see how I could explain this better. But I have this sort of first impulse. Who's this story going to be for? How do I see it? I'm a person that sees the world in story anyway. So when I encounter something that for some reason sparks something with me, without even thinking about it, I think about it in terms of story. If I was going to tell this to somebody else, how would I tell it? And Hmm. sometimes I say to myself, you know what? I would tell this as a really quick little rhyming romp. And so, oh, yeah, I'm writing for four-year-olds today. Or I would tell this, I would go into great depth. I'm going to do a lot of research. I need to discover things for myself. And then I say to myself, that's either middle grade or high school. And that will depend, of course, the difference there will depend on what material I discover. 
in the process of doing the research. I think it's interesting that you cross between nonfiction and fiction so frequently. Mm -hmm. As a writer, do you find it advantageous to maintain a foot in both worlds? You know what? I, I, I certainly can't imagine not doing both because I love the challenge of both. But I also think it really keeps, well, I know it certainly keeps my interest. That, that sounds like, you know, I can't do one thing only. But yeah, I guess I can't. I'm, I'm really, really interested in challenging myself as a writer. I like to try new things and I like variety. So you can see that in my own writing. But I also think that doing nonfiction and fiction, writing both, I think keeps my skills sharper. I certainly use all my fiction toolbox when I write nonfiction. And I think because I write so much fiction, I think that's a large part why the nonfiction reads or can read like it's a novel or it's fictional because I'm using that same toolbox. And I don't have much of a problem, you know, borrowing a particular skill or, or craft. I don't have a particular problem using one for the other, which is why I think about Honeybee that came out this year. And how many times I've heard people say it's a piece of nonfiction, but it reads like, you know, but it reads like a biography and yet it doesn't. It reads like a story. And I don't know how many people I've had tell me I made them cry at the end. They'd say over a honeybee. And I think, yeah, I'm using my fiction toolbox here today to tell this true story about an insect. I can definitely see how the tools that you would use as a nonfiction writer could transfer to fiction. Does it work in the inverse? Are there tools or skills that are applicable in nonfiction that you carry into your fiction writing? It really does, because I know that oftentimes I know that I need to set, um, I don't know how else to put it, set the table. I'll give you an example. It's easier than me trying to explain it. I did a, a book a few years ago, a collaboration with some other YA authors called Fatal Throne, which is historical fiction about the wives of Henry VIII. And as the authors and I discussed who was going to take what part, what affinity they had for which wife. And we wrote it as first person. We also wanted to stay pretty close to the truth, even though we wanted to fill in those places, thoughts and feelings that we didn't have any actual evidence for. So it's fully fiction. I don't want to say I got stuck because that's not really the case. But everyone agreed that I should become, you can see where my head was at, I should write as Catherine of Aragon because that was the first time that they were going to encounter this world and that if anyone could sort of set the table, bring readers into this Tudor world, a place that for young adult readers is probably as familiar as, you know, the moon or Mars. If anyone was going to bring those readers into the world, it was me. And so in that case, I ended up using a lot of my nonfiction skills. What context do they need to understand the story? How much do I need to tell them? without becoming completely bogged down in, like, you know, the Reformation or Ferdinand and Isabella. How much do they need to move on with the story? So it did. My, my nonfiction skills served me well there. They do when I write historical fiction, because that's that same idea. I have to provide enough context for my readers to move on and understand the story, but not enough to get them bogged down. I feel the same way when I write nonfiction, too. You know, how much do I tell you? How much backstory do you need? How much context does my reader need? It depends on what they need to understand the story that I'm telling them. As we're talking about nonfiction, this past year in 2020, you published your eighth biography, I believe, this one titled The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh. It almost seemed like an odd choice. In some ways, he feels like a person from such a different time. And yet, reading the book, that turns out really not to be the case at all. What inspired you to write a biography about Charles Lindbergh for teenagers? Oh, well, I wasn't going to. I was going to write sort of true crime is what I thought I had in my head. I was going to write true crime about the Lindbergh kidnapping. And it's something that it seemed to me middle school and high schools, they know about it because they ask about it a lot. So I thought, okay, let's, let's shine some truth on it. Let's look at some new theories. That was my thinking. And as I got into this, the research, what I kept falling over, I shouldn't say falling over, but I swear it felt like he kept sticking out his foot and tripping me, was Charles Lindbergh. He kept getting in the way of my story. And I, you know, I would have to stop. And I'd, I kept asking questions as I did research. Like the first big question I remember coming across was, 
why in the world when her son is kidnapped and we have all the police come and people are going to investigate and yet they turn to this what is he at this time 27 they turn to this young man with absolutely no skills beyond his amazing flying skills and they turn to him and they're like all right lead us in this investigation to find your son and i kept thinking to myself why in the world would they do that what would he possibly know and this is what i you know you ask a question you kind of go huh and then that leads you down down the rabbit hole you go all all around i'm asking questions suddenly i'm unbelievably curious and every time i found oh an answer to one of my questions all it did was leave me with 10 more questions he's an enigma he's Gosh, you know, I still don't even really know who he is. I don't think anybody knows who he is. You don't, you can't even come close. He's just a complete mystery. And the more I knew about him, the more frustrated and sort of repelled and same thing, obsessed I became because I thought, I don't understand. I don't understand. I'd go for walks with my family at the end of my work day. And the poor things, all they'd hear about was, I don't understand. I don't understand at all. And I'd have another question. And then what I began to realize is that I think my curiosity about him stemmed from the fact that every time I found issues in his world, they're the same issues that we were dealing with in our very same political moment. It was just so unexpected. I remember when I called my editor, Ann Schwartz, and I said, you know, that wonderful book about Charles Lindbergh's baby kidnapping is now going to be a full-blown biography, and I hope you can stand it. But the issues were so, such a parallel that I, I had not realized. So part of me felt the same way. I thought, who is this man? He feels like a relic of the past. We should know that he flew across the Atlantic, and maybe, you know, it's interesting to know about the kidnapping. But after that, why should it matter? And I realized that he matters a lot. His story matters a lot. We can learn a lot about who we are and how we live today by taking a look at Charles Lindbergh and how he lived 80 years ago. Well, that's a really good point. I want to pick up on that. In the book's prologue, you describe the environment that surrounded a speech that Lindbergh gave at an America First committee rally at Madison Square Garden in, I think, 1941. Right. For listeners who might not be familiar with it, can you talk about what the America First Committee was? Sure. It started out, it was, you know, it was formed by people like Sergeant Shriver and um, Gerald Ford. Um, it was a student organization, a grassroots organization, and it really was an isolationist organization. People were worried that we were going to go to war again, and no one wanted to do that. It had only been 20 years since we were involved in the last European war. And this is what people, they weren't looking at the Pacific. They were looking across the Atlantic to Europe. And the majority of Americans didn't want to go to war again. And so originally, it was sort of this grassroots movement that picked up momentum. And originally, it was a really odd sort of bedfellow of American citizens. It was just folks that didn't want to go to war. And what happened is Roosevelt and events moved America closer to closer to an understanding that Hitler was someone that was going to have to be stopped, that Britain was a country that needed our help, that democracy really was on the line, that this was a war that, if not physically fought with American boots on the ground, we certainly needed to help the British fight. And so what happened was that those people that initially joined America first left the organization, and there was a sort of vacuum that was filled and it became sort of, I'm not even going to say sort of, it really was a radicalized group. By the time Lindbergh becomes the face of America first, it is full of anti-Semites, people like Father Coughlin, who'd called in his supporters, so oh, America first is a place you need to be, a lot of American fascists. And so it became something different by the time Charles Lindbergh becomes the face than it had when it had begun. And he becomes the face of America first. I got to say, for me, I had not, let me let me go back. I have so much I want to say about it. Well, there's so much to say. So much to say. The fact that I kept hearing at the very same time that I began to look closer at America first, I'd always thought it was simply um, a group of isolationists. And I'd always thought that Charles Lindbergh was simply an isolationist. And that's okay. What I didn't realize that he was not an isolationist. He's truly a fascist. 
And he was not an isolationist in the sense that he didn't want to keep America out of war. America could go to war, and Charles Lindbergh's philosophy was America could go to war if it went to war with Germany. The point was that all white、um, European countries should fight together to push back the hordes of, as he would call them, the hordes of brown and yellow people, and that included Russians. I'm not. I don't mean to laugh, but I don't quite understand the logic. It has something to do with eugenics, in truth. But at the very same time that I heard America First being batted around as sort of a political movement here in the United States, currently, at the same time I'm beginning to truly understand what America First was by '41, '42 here in the United States. And you know the the parallels were shocking and scary and surprising. So he, you know, he was willing to go to war. But not against Hitler, and he was perfectly happy to go to war against the Japanese. So he was not an isolationist. You may not know the answer to this question, but there's something that I found myself trying to make sense of ever since I finished reading the book. To what do historians attribute Lindbergh's anti-Semitism? Do you know? I don't think you addressed that in the book, and I found myself wondering whether the views that he held later in his life were present in his home growing up. Was that the case? Do you know? Well, you know, anti-Semitism was prevalent in the United States, anyway, right? Jewish Americans couldn't live in certain neighborhoods; they couldn't go to certain schools. You know, there was quotas for universities. Most universities, they had to have their own resorts and their own clubs and their own organizations. They were separate. But Charles Lindbergh was a step way past that, so he was unbelievably virulent in his anti-Semitism. And unusual, even for a time of anti-Semitism in the United States. Anyway, I have a couple of thoughts about it. We can go back to his father, who was a congressman and who was a bit of a radical congressman. Anyway, and while I didn't find any specific references that his father made to Jews, he did talk about big business a lot. Which you know, there's that old trope about Jewish Americans controlling business and the money, right? And they have、right. some secret organization that controls the money. You know, you heard his father talking about that during World War One. He was a congressman. He didn't want America to fight for World War One because we weren't fighting for democracy. We were fighting for these businessmen who wanted to make a lot of money off of war. This is what Charles Lindbergh's father railed about in Congress and was considered a bit of a crank. By most people, because of his pamphlets and things that he wrote and published, so Charles Lindbergh had certainly had a model of radical thinking. He'd already had that model.、Um, eugenics certainly played into it. His belief in eugenics, eugenics actually believes that there are more superior races and there are less superior races, and the Jewish race in eugenics was certainly put. In that lower race, so I think all of that together. He was an unformed and uneducated mind, Lindbergh. He was a sharp mind, but he was certainly unformed, uneducated,、um, not particularly an analytical thinker in terms. You know, you, I say that, and I think the guy figured out how to get across the Atlantic. So he wasn't a big thinker, I guess, in terms of politics and that sort of thing, and. You know, when he met Alexis Carrel, I think he really did. Carrel really did form sort of his education. It was the first time that he'd really spent time with a wildly, highly educated man, and he was easily molded. Lindbergh was, despite his extreme confidence. I believe he was really, really easily molded because he hadn't been molded early on academically.、Right. Yeah, I suspect that people who are listening. No, Charles Lindbergh, as we've talked about, is the first person to fly from New York to Paris. What they might not know is just how much of a celebrity he became as a result of that accomplishment. I'd heard he was a celebrity, but until I read your book, I had absolutely no idea what that meant. Even by today's standards, in a culture that fetishizes celebrity, the fame he enjoyed is almost inconceivable. To what do you attribute that? Why did? Lindbergh emerge as such an enormous, influential celebrity in his time. Well, he came at the perfect time. 
it's the 1920s and in the United States in the 1920s was wild and free and flappers and bootleg gin and I mean that whole thing that we all hear about you know it really also was of Scott Fitzgerald's 1920s in the sense that people felt that they had lost their way that they didn't believe in heroes anymore they didn't believe in those old sort of wholesome ideas of morality anymore they had turned their back on it even as a society people really worried about what will happen with our children? They've grown up and they've grown up in this wild time. It really was a time of, we were so, I'm trying to find the best words for it. As a country, the sort of feeling in the country was that we were disappointed after World War I. We had discovered that the war to end all wars probably wasn't going to end all wars, that what it meant died for in the trenches, we'd come home. And this ideal of democracy and heroes and fighting for what was right. We just didn't feel like that was true, that we'd actually seen the truth and that it was not what we as Americans had sort of been sold, right? And so here was this wild and crazy time. And yet on the underside of it, Americans were still trying to find themselves again. So here comes Charles Lindbergh. First, he does this amazing thing that reminds Americans that I mean, they really become Lindbergh. It's an American accomplishment. They feel like they all have accomplished this thing with Charles Lindbergh. So he sort of returned America. Look, at, there really is a hero. And look how handsome he is and how wholesome he is and how modest he is. He is the anti-1920s in many ways. And this very thing that Americans are actually searching for, hoping for, longing for, as we move towards 1930, really, right? So he comes at the very right moment, historically, I think. And then, of course, it's the fact that all Americans followed him. The 1920s, of course, was this time also where Americans loved, um, they weren't particularly interested in politics and what was going on in the world and bigger issues. Um, we'd sort of become very interested in, I mean, even if you read the newspapers at the time, Americans are really interested in, in murders and sensational things and how long you can sit on a flagpole, how many hours. I mean, we have this fascination, this new fascination with sensationalism, right? So we have this huge, basically what newspapers turned it into is a race across the Atlantic with some of the greatest heroes of the time. And here comes this ordinary boy that no one has ever heard of before. He's going to take on Admiral Byrd, for heaven's sakes. And nobody's even heard of him. He literally drops in from nowhere this man that suddenly represents all good things, the wholesome Midwestern. And they follow him. The newspapers follow him. Of course, it's this huge story. And so Americans feel like they follow him all the way across the Atlantic, and he's theirs. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is feeling the same way about him. The whole world. So, I mean, he's an international celebrity. And, you know, no one expected at least of which Charles Lindbergh, but it certainly helps because you have this publicity, the world follows and listens. And then he actually flies the Atlantic and he's unbelievably humble about it. He just wanted to fly home. Seriously, he wanted to fly around Europe and have some fun and that didn't happen. So in many ways, he's still a kid, right? And saying to himself, how did this happen? Which is even more endearing to Americans. And then, of course, he comes home. And he takes his national tour. And it's almost like this goodwill publicity tour. Now, he is doing it to promote aviation. But in the process, he really promotes Charles Lindbergh. And I can't remember. What did I say in my book? Three out of five Americans saw him. And that's astonishing when you think that all we had was newsreels and radios. That many Americans actually saw him in person, which means they got into cars and they drove to wherever it was that he was visiting, which wasn't easy in wow. the 1920s either because we didn't have a highway system. So by the time that many people have seen him, he is the great Charles Lindbergh. The fact that he's reticent, that he doesn't want any part of it, that he hides from the press only increases. He's elusive, and now he's even more beguiling to the public. You mentioned that ultimately his anti-Semitic views contribute to his downfall in American life. But I wondered how much you think his celebrity 
played a role in contributing to his downfall as well. Is there a connection between the two, do you think? Oh, I'm sure there is a connection. I think there is. You know, he wouldn't have had that big of a fall if he hadn't had that art fall. But the fact that he was able to make that big of a, had that big of a voice and was able to say those very anti-American, very vile things that he actually says on a national stage, pretty open, I mean, very openly and writes about it in his journal as well. I don't understand what the big deal was. He said after the Des Moines, after the world sort of turned on him and publicly denounced him, even in Congress, denounced him, never heard such un-American talk is what congressmen said and former presidential candidates, and he didn't understand it. You know, why is it we can talk about everything but our Jewish problem? I mean, seriously, this is Charles Lindbergh. So he didn't get it either, which shows how deeply, deeply he believed it. But I definitely think that because he had that vast, vast celebrity, he had a big voice and he used that platform to his anti-Semitic views on a, you know, international stage, certainly lended to the big fall because everybody heard it. Everybody heard it. His celebrity seems to have misled others about him as well. In the sense, I'm thinking of the fact that the American government essentially sends him to pre-war Germany to take store of their air bases and the planes that they have available. And you've talked about his utter certainty and his abilities, and yet the fact that he was easily shaped and manipulated by others. And, and that's what the Germans did as well. They essentially fed him misinformation in hopes that he'd carry it back to England and the United States, which he did. Oh, yeah, he did. And I wouldn't say the government actually sent him to Germany. He was already in... Oh, that's right, in England. Yeah, he was already in Europe. And it's Truman Smith that decides, you know, not necessarily the federal government, but it's Truman Smith, because I don't believe Roosevelt would have gone for it. But Truman Smith decides sort of on his own, he's attache over there, and he needs um, to get some numbers. He knows something's going on in the Luftwaffe, but he can't figure out what it is, and he needs some numbers. And so he thinks, who could get numbers? The greatest hero, the greatest celebrity of our time you know, Charles Lindbergh, and he will want to come over and see what's going on with their air power. And so that's where it begins. But then, you know, Lindbergh is completely taken in. He completely loves Germany. I, I know that part of his fascination for Germany, at least at first, he loved efficiency anyway. And he was kind of a controlling guy. There's an understatement. He was a controlling guy. So he really liked the control that he saw in Germany. But he also, you know, detested the American press. In fact, he also called them the greatest, greatest enemy. But he hated, hated the press for following him around and, and writing about him when he didn't want to be written about. And so when he got to Germany, none of that happened. It was a very controlled by the government press, which Charles Lindbergh thought was a really good idea. And the longer he, of course, he was in Germany, the more he began to really love fascism um, and even begins to question things like democracy seems like a ridiculous idea. Why did it matter, you know, what people thought if we didn't know what was in their heads? Why did everybody get a vote? Who knew what was going on in everybody's head? So he really begins to have serious doubts about democracy and then, of course, encourages Anne to write The Wave of the Future, which is a horrible little book. But but he really does. So what, what's interesting, though, is that his numbers and what he thinks is going on suddenly become really important to British intelligence, French intelligence, American intelligence. And when you look back on the records now, when you talk to historians now, though, they will tell you that those numbers were completely inflated and completely wrong. But again, people believed him because he was Charles Lindbergh. So We'll put him in charge of gathering of military information because he's Charles Lindbergh. And we'll put him in charge of a kidnapping investigation because he's Charles Lindbergh. And, you know, he doesn't know anything about either of those. But it's amazing what celebrity will allow you to believe a person knows and doesn't know. It's truly remarkable. I have to ask you, how did you come to feel about Charles Lindbergh as a result of writing the book? 
I've said this a couple times. I'll you know say it again because it, it it sums up how I feel about him. The more I got to know him, the more repulsive he was. Learning about Charles Lindbergh was sort of like looking under a rock. <laughs> it's a good analogy. It really it's was. A good analogy. So it's like think about you have in your garden you have this beautiful big quartz rock, right? And you go, wow, that's really a shiny, pretty thing. And then you pull it up, and underneath is all this horribleness. And that's how I felt about Charles Lindbergh. And it was one of those things where I kept saying, how can it be so shiny and nice on the outside, you know, this hero? And we still have how many streets and schools? I used to know because I counted at one time. Something like 2,100 streets are named after Charles Lindbergh in the country and hundreds of schools and school districts still. And then you look underneath and you go, I never knew this. I, I never knew this. And I also think it's just a fascinating, you know, I can't stop thinking about the fact that Americans really do not want to know about their heroes, right? They really don't want to look too closely. And I still can't, you know, Charles Lundberg is not anybody I'd ever want to know, but I still can't take away that accomplishment flying the Atlantic. You know, as, as detestable as Charles Lundberg was, the flight across the Atlantic was an astonishing, almost miraculous thing. And if we could just stick to that, <laughs> but we can't. So, As fascinated as I was by his life, I think I was equally, if not more, fascinated by his wife and Morrow's life. And I was actually, I was struck by the attention that you afforded her in the book. Did you expect that to be the case going into the project or how did that come to pass? I didn't expect it, but then, you know, I didn't know much about Anne Morrow. I have gift from the sea. It, I'm going to say this is so terrible, but true, Sean. It used to be one of my favorite books. It used to have a first edition. It used to sit face out on one of my bookshelves. Oh, wow. It's now been <laughs> slid inside. Here's the thing. I did not realize, because I didn't know that much about him, I hadn't realized how very close they were. And how he, you know, he has a career in aviation, but she has a career in aviation too. Right. Because he brings her along and she goes along. And so they are a pair. They are a couple. They stick together, stick together to the very end, right? And even after he dies, she spends her life cleaning up his reputation despite everything. So my feeling was that she fully, fully needed to be you know, almost as much of the story as a biography. It could almost have been a dual biography if I'd spent some time with her childhood and her post Lindbergh life. It could have almost been a dual biography because absolutely, I learned a lot about him through her eyes in her journals. Interestingly, he doesn't write much about her and the family, but she is the window to see him as a father, as a husband, as a partner, as a flying partner. And I found it fascinating the choices she made. You know, we talked about how Lindbergh was uneducated and unformed in many ways. And yes. Anne Morrow is wildly educated and yet still unformed. She's waiting. She is almost like the American public in many ways in my mind because she is was waiting for a hero, hmm. waiting for him. And almost from her journals, it was like love at first sight in her mind. So she was waiting for this hero, this hero to sort of form her. Oh, interesting. To take her on this exciting life that she didn't feel she would have had without without him. And so I often, I would think about Anne in terms of she's exactly, exactly the American public in many ways. You know, she has this idea of who he is. And even when he's difficult and he's cruel, and he doesn't care about her feelings and he doesn't care about the children's feelings. She still is in a certain amount of awe. You know, he is this golden hero, even to her, for a very long time, very late in life. How did you come to feel about her? I'll be honest, having read the book, there seems to have been at least a part of you that sympathized with her. I am more sympathetic towards her than I am towards him. Just for the record, Candy, I am too. <laughs> the whole book, I was like, this poor woman, this poor woman. And I know she made her choices. And I know she she liked the wave of the future, this book that she wrote. 
And I have a feeling that she was pressured to do that. I, I really, I know she made choices, but then I know she wished she hadn't made those choices. I know she apologized publicly for the things that she'd written, you know, way to the future. And he never did, of course. There was always an excuse for what he felt, but she did not make excuses. Yeah, you know, I, I, I do like her. I don't know if likes the word. I feel sympathy for her. Yes. I mean, I feel a real sense of, I understand her. I mean, I understand her. I understand what it's like to live with someone who's unbelievably controlling. And I understand things that you will do to make that person stop the pressure, stop pressuring you. I also, you know, she was flawed in the sense that she didn't have a whole lot of sense of who she was. And I'm going to give her the benefit of the times for that because women were not encouraged to be their own people, right? They were not encouraged to find their own careers, strike out their own paths. Even someone like Anne Morrow, whose family had money, it was still the 1920s and women were not encouraged to have their own agency. And I think it took her a very long time, almost, you know, she's in her 50s before she figures out who Anne Morrow Lindbergh really is to some extent. I don't think she ever really did. And this is one of those enigmas. You, you referred to Charles Lindbergh as being an enigma. In some ways, they were a very modern couple and that he brought her with him on all of their adventures. Mm. He taught her to fly a plane. He taught her to navigate a plane and read maps. He taught her to communicate with government radio stations. And yet, at the same time, as you said, he was extremely controlling of her. Oh, right. And I think that's what, that's what made me empathize. There's a line in there where she likens it to being a bird wanting to fly away and having a string tied around its leg. Right, right. And, you know, haven't we all felt like that at some point? But you feel like that every single day of your life. Did she really want to be a pilot? I mean, she, you know, when she writes about flying early on, it's with this exhilaration. But you'll note that later on, she doesn't fly right? She doesn't fly with him and she doesn't fly on her own. And Reeve told a story about not even realizing that her mother was a pilot and an extraordinarily good pilot, a good navigator. Her own daughter didn't even know that this was part of Anne's life. So my, you know, I'm thinking to myself, is it because she really didn't care about it and she just did it for him? I believe so. She wanted to stay home and raise those babies. I mean, think about the fact that she leaves John. I mean, she leaves Charles, little Charles, and she doesn't want to. But then after the whole tragedy, they have John, and she goes again. Not because she wants to, but because he wants her to. And even the fact that he lists qualities for a wife, right? Unbelievable. I know. <laughs> That's unbelievable to me. I know. And he lists this, these this qualities for a wife. And, and one of them, of course, is when he sees Anne, he, he recognizes that there is someone that he can easily form, easily manipulate, easily move, and also has all those other qualifications. And because he fully intends to take his wife with him. This is an intention before he even gets married that he has a flying partner. I think that I empathized with her because of her naivete about what it would mean to live as the partner of a celebrity. Right. I can empathize with her because she's an introvert. She had a rich interior life. She loved to read and to write and to listen to music. And she really, when she, she married him, to some extent, she surrendered so many of those things to be with him. She did. She, that's exactly it. She surrendered a large portion of who she was. Yes. Even when they're still engaged, there's this moment where you know that she's rethinking this because she's marrying a man at the time that didn't read, told her straight out, I don't want to write about things. I want to do them. He didn't know authors. He didn't know poetry. She took along poems to read on that she'd written on their honeymoon. He didn't want any part of that. This honeymoon is an adventure on a boat, for heaven's sakes. And then he wants her to clean up. So, you know, she did not know what she was getting into. Her mother certainly did. She didn't think it was a great idea. But, but Anne did not know what she was getting into. What she knew she wanted was this kind of knight in shining armor. She thought she did, which only goes to show how immature her thinking was. 
that she's still looking for the knight in shining armor. And of course, there was no greater knight in armor than Charles Lindbergh in the you know late 20s. And then you're then you're there, and how do you get out? Divorces were not common. They had children, so. I didn't know this until reading your book, and I think this is very revealing of the Charles Lindbergh that we're talking about. In addition to his family with Anne, he also had children with three other women, all of them European, and amazingly, two of them sisters. <laughs> amazingly. Do you know, did Anne ever learn of his infidelities in her lifetime? Supposedly not, but I'm not fully convinced of that. And I think that's probably one of those secrets that the Lindbergh children will take with them. I, I think she did. I wouldn't be surprised if there were more, honestly, because there were pictures of a Filipino woman in his papers, which, of course, we can't get to yet. Some of those papers are locked up tight. So I, I think, yes, that she knew, but I don't have any evidence. And I know when I got to that part, it was shocking to me because this was a man that was so physically cold. You know, when he's dying, his, his son puts his hand on his foot because he knows that his father wouldn't want him to hold his hand. And yet he has these three other women that he writes quite romantically to for Charles Lindbergh. Like I kept reading. This is where I kept going, who is this guy? What in the world? I would do research and go, what? What are we doing now? Dude, please just stop because I'm so confused about you. Right. But here's a man all his life would not even drink. I mean, he didn't drink. He hated drinking. He hated people if they drank too much. He didn't smoke. He ate well. He was sensible. He wouldn't drink coffee because it might give him the jitters and that would have, he'd lose some control. Later on, he is with these three other women in Europe and he's drinking wine and smoking cigarettes and wearing berets. <laughs> I couldn't unfortunately get it for the book, but I found this picture of him wearing this beret. And I'm like, who is this yes. man? I just don't yeah. understand. And I think the closest understanding I ever got was Reeve who said that it just was this made her sad in many ways, because it just showed how compartmentalized, and we know he was from his early life, how compartmentalized he was emotionally, that she felt very sad about that, that he'd, he couldn't share all of himself with his family, with his people. So, you know, one person got Charles Lindbergh, the serious father who wants to give you lectures about topics, and then somebody else gets this crazy Charles Lindbergh, who's a romantic and holds your hand and you fall in love with instantly and you drink wine in Europe with. <laughs> and, and the one guy that gets some, that's the Charles Lindbergh from flying school, right? It's just so weird. And he doesn't really carry anybody through his life from beginning to end except Anne. We can add to this, the Charles Lindbergh who fathers these additional families and whose children don't know that he's Charles Lindbergh because he, for years, leads them to believe he's an American writer traveling under another name. I went, when I got to that part, I thought, my God, you mentioned we may, we may not know. He may have had other families. They may not know <laughs> who their true. father was. Sure. And some of them are still like bound to secrecy and all kinds of, it, that, that's crazy too. Or, yeah, that's crazy that the daughter discovers it's Charles Lindbergh because after her mother dies, she has pictures of him. And she wants to know if anybody knows this American writer. And she shows it to one of her friends who goes, American writer, that's Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> we know who that is. And she's like, what? And when you see pictures of the kids, the oldest son looks a lot like Charles Lindbergh. You know, it doesn't take a great leap to see the resemblance. But I couldn't get over the cruelness of your father will not come. If you breathe a word of his visits, anything, if you say anything, about your father to anyone, my secret children, I'll never come back. And I I couldn't get over the cruelness of no. that for children. I was going to say, even just, I laugh a moment ago about the fact that they don't know their father is Charles Lindbergh. But even then, reading the book, I was thinking, how traumatizing would that be? That years later in your life, you have this truth revealed to you that your father's not who you thought he was. And the kids have all met. You know, at least Reeve has certainly met them and accepted them. And I think that's lovely. But really, how traumatic to not really know 
who he was. And I thought of this later too. I thought how to be this grown person to know that your mother kept that secret from you as well. How completely shocking that would be. Just inconceivable. Honestly, I could talk with you about Lindbergh all day because he and Anne Morrow are just such incredibly fascinating riddles as humans. But I, I want to shift gears, if you don't mind, and just like to talk to you a little bit about how you approach the work of writing nonfiction. At the end of your book on Lindbergh, you include a bibliography that is epic and that consists of books written by or about Lindbergh, books about principal figures in his life, ancillary historical events in his life. You have newspaper and magazine articles from the period and so on. With that in mind, how do you balance all the reading that you're required to do with the actual work of writing? And I ask that selfishly because that's that's something that I struggle to maintain a balance with in my own research, especially with reading. I find that once I start down a rabbit hole, it's often at the expense of my having time to write. Oh, see, I, you know, I'm going to encourage you. This is why it takes me when I do a huge book like Lindbergh. And then I say to myself, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I can imagine. I, how many you say I had eight now? Because every time I must say, I'm never doing this again. Because I always think I'm going to write something that I don't end up writing because I go down those rabbit holes. And, right. you know, I think that's where you find those, those stories. So here for me, I have, you know, I, always, I say the research is, well, you know this too. It's completely organic. So you go where your curiosity leads. You go where the material leads. You ask unusual questions. I can usually find the answers for them. And I have, I always say I have like four trails, five trails that I follow. And first, of course, is all primary sources. So I will go to the places that their materials are held. If I can't go there, I'll look and see what I've got online. But I always, always will read the primary sources. So anything that Lindbergh wrote, anything that Anne wrote, um, letters that they wrote to each other, things that other people wrote about them, um, published manuscripts. I found a lot of those interesting stories about Lindbergh that nobody published. And so that takes a while. And what's interesting is once you start finding those primary sources, you find other primary sources that nobody's even bothered with, right? So I'm reading Truman Smith's papers, and an archivist there says, you know, his wife wrote us about her time in Germany, and we have the manuscript. It was never published. And she had some interesting observations about Lindbergh in Germany, which I would never have had without that. So I do my primary sources. I do Secondary sources, I do those secondary because I don't really want to know what other people are saying about my subject. I want to kind of figure it out for myself. I do a lot of reading of magazines and newspapers of the time with a real eye to understanding that these were magazines that are newspapers and magazines of the 20s and the 30s. So you take them with a real grain of salt. And then I always visit if I can't. If I can go to the actual places where they lived and worked, I will go there. Why do you do that? I had a question for you about that. Why do you do that? I always do. Here's the thing. I discover the most unusual things, or maybe it's just me have the most unusual thoughts. Going to the places, I really, this is going to sound so silly, but I really believe that houses hold memories, landscapes speak. You get a real sense. It's as close as I can get to standing in someone's shoes, I guess is, is it. And I can look around. And more than once, I've had travel actually change my vision of things. For example, when I was working on the family Romanov, I went to Russia. I went late in the process. I went to um, Sarkoselo, which was the biggest state, the imperial estate that the family moved to, to escape the seat of government. Oh, I roll my eyes. Well, you are the seat of government, but you want to escape. And so Nicholas and Alexandra took their kids out to Sarkoselo, and they chose this very private little palace which all primary source material indicated was in the middle of this thousands and thousands of acre imperial palace with a guards and a fence around it. So they could never see anyone or hear anyone unless they were invited. And they actually wanted to be out there in this bubble. When I get there, I find that the palace that they chose to live in is right up against the gate that's around the property. So it's right on the edge of the property. And then the other side of the gate is the town. It's where peasants were living. In fact, the rooms that they chose were along that side of the palace. 
So they overlooked the fence into the neighborhoods where their subjects were living. And since it's the days where there are no screens, if they had their windows open, they would have heard babies crying, music, laughter, talking, the smoke from cooking dinners. And so even though they had moved out there to be away from it all and away from their people and be just alone by themselves, they weren't, right? All they had to do was look out the window to actually see how their policies or their non-policies, in the case of Nicholas, were affecting the people. All they did do was look out the window, but they didn't. Or if they did, it didn't have any effect. And I remember standing there thinking to myself, my God, this is not physical isolation. It's a psychological isolation. And he stood at those imperial gates with my hands on the wrought iron. I looked out at that town from the palace's driveway. And that's when I realized that I could not write that book unless I told you firsthand accounts of the rest of the story, which I hadn't even seen the rest of the story. I was a bit isolated myself. I had to tell you stories about soldiers and workers and peasants and revolutionaries. I had to tell their stories as well as the Romanov story. And so that literally came those little interstitials in the book. They actually are titled Beyond the Palace Gates because I literally stood beyond the palace gates. And so it completely changed the scope of, of that book. And that happens to me more often than not to travel. So I always go those places so I can see it myself. There's always some discovery. I go late so that I pretty much am seeped in how Charles Lindbergh saw his childhood home in Minnesota, you know, or how the Romanovs saw that palace in Circosalo. So I go late. And then, of course, the last path is experts. I'm the first one to use experts as much as I possibly can. I use them late, too. But I have no problem asking people for help. And I people are unbelievably generous. I've never had anybody say no. And usually they go far and beyond what I've asked them. Then when I get ready to write, I, I don't write until I'm ready. And this is going to sound strange. But I usually don't have any idea how I'm going to tell that story that I'm doing research about. I usually don't know what the structure is. I don't know how I'm going to tell the story until it begins to whisper to me. We are now ready to be told, and this is how how I see the telling of the story. So it comes really late. So I do a lot of research before I even have an understanding of how I'm going to tell it. And then when I write it the first time, I write it longhand. Oh, my God. Do you really? sitting here in my office and I've got my new manuscript here and I'm not kidding you. It's about 400 pages. Wow. I'm looking at it going, don't let the cat in because he'll lay on my pile and it'll be up <laughs> over. But I do, I write it. And the reason I do, I write it longhand, wide line, loose leaf paper with a big pen, cheap, cheap materials. I do it on purpose um, so that it doesn't feel precious. And I actually don't even call it my first draft. This is not a first draft. This is what I call dumping down. And so I tell the story. And if I don't know a particular fact, I write 2K, you know, 2COM, TK. Um, if I don't know a date, I make like a little line. It's a blank. If I know that I need context, but I need to do more research, I suddenly realize that I know nothing about the early roots of America first. I actually will make a note that says roots of America first here and move on. So that when I get done, I have basically a structure and that's it. That's when I have to go back and plot things on. And it's certainly not going to stay exactly the same, but I'm telling you, it comes pretty close. So what it is, is what I'm doing that first time is just, in fact, I was talking to my friend Deborah Heiligman not too long ago, and we were talking about how we both actually, actually have been known to push our research, actually push it out of the office so that I'm not tempted to go and dig in there and find that perfect quote, you know, I leave it blank. And so what I'm doing is I'm finding the story first. I've saved the impossible question, of course, for last. Oh, good. But when you're dealing with a subject like Charles Lindbergh, whose life has been so thoroughly documented, how do you go about finding a new angle from which to tell his story? Yeah, I think, like I said, the first thing I do is I do not read secondary sources until very late because I'm trying to figure out my own look at Lindbergh or my own look at Anne or my own look at the Romanovs, whoever I'm examining. So that's the first thing I do. But the second thing I do is like when I said the story whispers to me, 
in truth, I actually have a term for that. I call it my vital idea. And it's what is it that I want to say with this particular piece of nonfiction? Because I'm doing more than chronicling a life or chronicling event. There's some something I want to say about how we live now that can be illustrated best through this historical life that I'm telling. So that is always my question. What is it I have to say to young readers of the 21st century with this guy's life from the 20th century? And I think right off the bat, that makes it entirely mine, right? So suddenly I'm going to include what I think is important to my story, my vital idea, and I'm not going to include whatever Mr. Berg's vital idea was for Lindbergh. And I think that really makes a difference. So it really is about my own perspective of who this guy is. And more importantly, what is it I want to say to my my young readers? What do I want to say to teen readers with this book? Or what do I want them to see? Mostly, what do I want them to question? What do I want them to ponder? Do they take any hope from the fact that we've been here before in some way? But, you know, I firmly believe that we don't know how to live in the present unless we tell our stories from the past, even the dark stories, even the ugly stories, even the stories we wish we didn't have to tell, like Charles Lindbergh. It's a story I've, you know, I've more than one person has said, I dreaded reading this book, and I'm thinking, why? But, yeah, I think that's that's that how do you find your own way in as you think about your own life and the story that you want to tell and how you see Charles Lindbergh. I recently got an email from someone who's working on a film about Anne and Charles and actually asked me to be a consultant on that film. And the wow. reason they did was because I had included information they had read nowhere else. And one of the things they cited was that I actually included that thank you note that he wrote to Gehring for his, you know, his iron cross that he got. And, you know, it's curious, the choice that others chose not to, but others have chosen to sort of ignore it anyway, to poo-poo it, to say, like Anne said, oh, that'll be an albatross, you know, that's going to be a real problem, and sort of wanted to sweep past that. And I didn't, I wanted to pause on it. Then the fact that I don't think anybody's ever described how he actually got it or that big fancy party that was actually at the American Embassy is where he got it. You know, it's all interesting. It was all interesting to me. So, Are you working on anything at present or do you have any forthcoming projects that you're able to talk about? My 400 pages, right? <laughs> right here. Actually, believe it or not, I am working on Leopold and Loeb. Do you know them? I don't think I do. They're a Chicago story, so the research, I didn't have to go far, and I have visited every place that they've been. They were these, as a 18 and a 19-year-old, who basically kidnapped and killed a boy, 14-year-old, for the experience of it. It's 1924, and it's sort of written, no, it is written like true crime. I finally got back to my true crime. It's written like true crime. But here's the thing. Not only is it a fascinating story in and of itself, It's got Clarence Darrow, the great attorney, who I don't Mm -hmm. think young readers know about, but who should know about. Clarence Darrow is their attorney. They're super rich, millionaire kids, highly educated in a city that's completely full of, I mean, it's Chicago in the 1920s. So, you know, full of graft and bribes and, but it speaks to capital punishment and how do we treat young people in the justice system? And what's interesting is the questions that kept popping up during the trial were questions that keep popping up now, including, do we really execute people under 21? We do. Leopold and Loeb is the first time you have psychiatric experts in the courtroom trying to make mental health a mitigating circumstance, which to this point, you're either insane and you didn't know what you were doing, or you were sane and you did know, and there was no gray areas. And this is the first time that, in a legal sense, we actually begin to debate, do kids have the same sort of brain as adults? Can we hold them to the same standards? 21 was the age of majority in Illinois at the time. So they were considered minors, but they were too old for our first juvenile court system in the United States, which happens to be Chicago. So there's a lot of... Wow, what a story. I know. So there's just a lot of fascinating, again, the fascinating parallels in just a rollickingly great story. You know, despite it being a murder story, it's just a really great story. Well, I can't wait to see that. 
Boy, I can't wait to be done. <laughs> I'm at that place. It's like, woo. Oh, <laughs> I can imagine. Capital punch. Well, before we finish, I do want to tell people who are listening, go buy this book. I cannot recommend The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh highly enough. Hands down, it was one of my favorite books of 2020. And you'll be amazed at how much you've learned by the time you finish reading this book. It's truly fantastic, which I suppose is why it's appearing at the top of all the best nonfiction books of 2020. And thank you, Candy, so much for talking with me. Uh, my father's home on a couch right now reading The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh because I've been talking to him so much about the book. So he probably would thank you if he were here for talking with me and giving him a little bit of quiet time. So. <laughs> oh, well, my pleasure. You'll have to let me know what he thinks. And that brings us to the end of this month's show. Thanks again to Candace for making time to talk with me and a huge, huge congratulations to her as well for winning the Excellence in Nonfiction for Young Adults Award. That is a truly, truly well-deserved honor. You can find Candace's book, The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh, at your local bookstore. And if you find yourself thinking, I'm not all that interested in Charles Lindbergh, let me just tell you, I went into the book feeling the same way, but reading it will give you a whole different perspective on some of the events we're living through today. If you liked what you heard this month, I'd appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. Otherwise, I look forward to seeing you back here next month when we'll continue to talk about the craft of storytelling. As always, happy reading. Sure.